Now, we've been sort of mentioning our theme. Uh, um, Janan gave us a theme a bit earlier. Who are you going to be in 2023? And building on that, well, who are we going to be? We're going to be people who uh, obviously focus on Jesus, more of Jesus, less of me in 2023. So we are focusing, of course, our life on the Lord and what the Lord has done for us. And we come together to learn more about him, to more of him and his nature, his character, the things that uh, inspire us and encourage us, the things that he's done, the things that he's said. And we see them in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And we want to be part of that and to extol him and see him as our, our saviour, our Lord of lords and King of kings. Winston Churchill once said, you can measure a man's character by the choices he makes under pressure. Someone else wrote, character is who you are under pressure, not who you are when everything's just fine. Someone else wrote, adversity does not build character, it reveals it. And we heard in Michael's testimony earlier on that when there was some pressure on, he, he turned to the Lord. His, his nature and his character in Michael that time was he knew where his strength was. He knew where the answers lay. Now, in Luke 23, Jesus is on the cross of Calvary. You can't get much more pressure than that, much more adversity than that. And Jesus Christ is about to speak. He said seven things that are recorded in our Bibles on the cross of Calvary. And this he's about to make his first utterance on the cross of Calvary. He's been betrayed. He's been denied. He's been spat upon. He's been beaten. He's been hauled before a false uh, court and been accused falsely. He's had a crown of thorns stuck on his head. He's been mocked with a robe of uh, purple, uh, his kingly robe uh, made fun of and jeered. He's been uh, treated like a common criminal. They've decided he's worthy of death when he's worthy of no, no such thing. They dragged him out in front of all of this mob, threw him under the ground on, on, a, on a cross, nailed him to it, stood him up against with two criminals. And he's about to speak at this particular time. And what he speaks, of course, uh, speaks volumes. It speaks what he is, not what he just says about his impeccable character. Now, we could have spoken, of course, a whole range of stuff. He could have vented his anger and uh, called down retribution and uh, vengeance and, uh, well, made all sorts of statements about their nature and their character and uh, how unjust and how unfair all this was, of course. He didn't do that. Verse 34 of chapter 23. Then said Jesus, these are his first words on the cross as he was crucified, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. So in the midst of all of this antagonism and aggression and violence and opposition in the excruciating pain he was suffering, not just physically, but he was going to bear the sins of the world, all of that, in the midst of all of that, what did he do? Well, he prayed. He could have called 10,000 angels. He could have called down fire and brimstone he could have called uh, God to, to open up the ground and swallow them all. He could have done a lot of things, no doubt. But he didn't do any of that. He prayed. He didn't pray for himself even. He prayed for them. And um, 
I'm sort of reminded of what Job did in the book of Job. We read after all of his adversity, we read at the very end that he prayed for his friends. Well, Jesus prayed for his enemies at this particular time, quite incredibly so. Father, forgive them. In 1 Peter it says, Who did no sin? This is Jesus. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judges righteously. That was the way that Jesus operated. Now, we're not just looking at sort of some of the characteristics of a a historical figure and uh, just making a general note about them. Of course, we're talking about the Son of God. And we're not just doing it just because he's the Son of God, because the Son of God expects us to emulate him. Now, we will not be able to reflect him in perfection, but the challenge of the Word of God and for Christians is to get it right and to do what they can to be an example like Jesus. We will never rise to that pinnacle, but we are to develop our character. We are to learn from what Jesus did, even on the cross of Calvary, maybe particularly on the cross of Calvary, when his true character under pressure was being demonstrated. And that we could learn from that and we can appreciate that and maybe develop and strengthen our character as well. Now, the first word he said on the cross of Calvary was Father. Now, Jesus, of course, and God are one, and he's one with the Father, but there was always an emphasis so that we would understand and appreciate that we might learn. And the Lord was always about extolling the virtues of his Father. In fact, the first words we ever hear about Jesus speaking was when he was 12 years of age, and he said, Wist you not that I must be about my Father's business? And we know that the Lord certainly pushed forward everything about his father. He wanted to be about his father's business. It delighted him to be about his father's business. He wanted to do his will. He wanted to please his heavenly father. There are examples for us in all of that, of course, in our attitude and our approach. When Jesus was preaching on the Sermon on the Mount, he mentioned father 17 times. Later on in John chapters 14 to 16, where the last sort of closing discourse of the Lord, 45 times he mentioned Father. So you can see the Father meant a lot to him. If you go down to verse 46, same chapter, and when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And having said thus, he gave up the ghost. He died. The last words he spoke, he spoke seven things that are recorded at least in our Bibles. The first mentions Father and the last mentions Father. First and last. That's how the Lord operated and maybe the message is there for us too. That's how we should operate. Is when we wake up in the morning, our heavenly father in our thoughts. When we go to bed at night, the last thing we think about is that our heavenly father just before we nod off, just temporarily overnight. Is that how we operate? Well, that's how the Lord operate. He was very much pleasing him to be not only just looking to his father, but committing his life to his father. And uh, we need to develop that relationship, of course. Now, you can't have that relationship with the Lord unless something happens. You can't decide, oh, well, God will be my father. No, that's not possible. I can't go around walking down the street and saying, oh, I think I'll have him as my father. That doesn't work. Something has to take place. You know, millions and millions of people say what is called the Lord's Prayer. I used to be one of them. 
not that I was churchy, but we used to, in our football team that once I played for, Australian Rules football team, one of the teams, used to have, uh, was a, a church team, as it turns out. I wasn't a church person, but I managed to get into this uh, church team, combined, I think Diamond Valley combined churches, football team or something or other. Uh, anyway, I was in this particular team and the, the uh, president of that club was a, a lay preacher in the Methodist church. And he made us gather around with our linseed oil and our, our stomps and all the rest of we're doing us and we're ready to go out on the field and uh, murder them. Uh, but we all gathered together and said the Lord's Prayer. And the Lord's Prayer starts off with our Father. And that's a lie for billions of people on the planet who would dare say such a thing because he's not their Father just because we say it. Our Father has to be an operation by the Lord. The Lord has to adopt us. The Lord has to do something. And this, of course, is what was taking place on the cross of Calvary. It was making provision for the Father of Jesus Christ to be our Father. In fact, it says in Romans 8 verse 16, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. The Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Adoption. And for those people who say, and uh, I'm sure many of them mean well, others, of course, just go through the routine like I did. Maybe the majority of people just say it by rote. Maybe you could teach a parrot to say the Lord's Prayer and it would be just as meaningful. Sadly, for most people, it doesn't, um, they don't understand. The Lord's Prayer is all about receiving the Holy Spirit. We've given talks on that many times. No doubt you've read it yourself. You can see it ends up telling us and the Lord, how much the Lord will give you the Holy Spirit. Your father will do this. Your natural father will do that. He'll look after you. God will give us the Holy Spirit to make him our heavenly father. And we need to have a heavenly father. We need to be able to say like Jesus, Father, when we preface our prayers. Or God, of course, whatever term we want to use, but that's the relationship we're looking to develop. The Bible made it clear, Jesus made it clear, that we're of our father, the devil. That didn't mean that we were drinking blood or doing some science thing or do whatever we're doing. It wasn't any of that. It was just the fact our nature was, was lying and deceiving and, uh, and corrupt and uh, sinful and, uh, and we were just of our father, the devil. That was our genetic spiritual generation. That was uh, the situation. We, we went through all of that uh, because there's none righteous, the Bible says. No, not one. All have fallen short of the glory of God. But now, of course, we, uh, we don't have to say the Lord's Prayer anymore. It's been fulfilled, but he is our Father. And the Bible says in, in 1 John, Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. In the Amplified Bible, named, called, identified, counted as the children of God. He has adopted us. We're his sons and daughters now by his spirit, of course. And we're very privileged to have a heavenly father who created the universe. And uh, we're very blessed and very happy to do that, of course. And we have a father who does care for us. I'd like to think all natural fathers would care for their children. Some don't a bit more than others. Some don't care less, sadly. But God is very consistent. He loves his children. He cares for his children. He allowed his son to die to make us his children. And so he's watching over us. He's going to answer our prayers. He will keep his promises. He will keep his word. We have a heavenly father. If he says something, he'll do it. And we can have a confidence in that. Of course, we have a heavenly father. We need to take notice of it. It says in, uh, in Proverbs, my son, hear the instruction of your father. Now, that might be a general statement through the book of Proverbs. 
uh, children listening to their mums and dads and being obedient. But there's something greater than that. Our Father now has given us instructions. And we're here, of course, as we always are, to listen to them and respond to them and to be well-pleasing like Jesus was and do the will of the Father to be about our Father's business. Now, what was he praying for? Well, Father, forgive them. He's praying for forgiveness. Uh, amazing, really, that uh, these people he was praying for. Father, forgive them. Who's the them there? Well, everybody that was there at that time, no doubt. He was praying at that time, would you believe, for people like the mob, like the, the high priest and the priests that mocked him, for Pontius Pilate and his compromise uh, for even Judas Iscariot and his uh, betrayal and, and greed and so on, for all those that mocked and jeered and spat upon him. Uh, he was praying for all of them. He was praying for all of those who were to come after him for 2,000 years. He was praying for mankind. Father, forgive them. Now, how could you possibly forgive all of these people, it would be impossible, wouldn't it? You'd think, how can you, you forgive that treachery? How could you forgive that wickedness? They were crucifying him, a, a sinless, spotless son of God. Now, he was prepared to do all of that for us, for the forgiveness of our sins. It says in Isaiah, he was wounded for our transgressions. Now, we weren't there, but in essence we were because the people that were there represented our nature one way or another. And we wouldn't literally necessarily want to crucify Jesus, but our, in our actions, the way we lived our life, we, we trampled him underfoot. I certainly had no respect, even though I said our Father out in heaven and so on, even though I might have gone to an odd church meeting here and there, I had no consideration whatsoever about my position with God. In fact, the only time I really referred to God is when I wanted something, when I wanted something to happen. And maybe I thought in my desperation, God might be able to provide this. But I, I had no inclination to serve him, to worship him, to praise him, to find anything about him. I had no interest in Jesus Christ. I had no interest really in, in the things that were spiritual whatsoever. And I dare say even those who go to church uh, and are churchy are not much better than I was. And certainly in God's sight, none righteous, no, not one. So we couldn't tidy up our own lives anyway. We couldn't go and do what we thought was a little better than someone else's. As far as God was concerned, we we're all in the same category. None righteous, no, not one. All had fallen short of the glory of God. And if we'd been there, we might well have said, away with him, away with him, crucify him. We will not have this man to rule over us. Because I certainly acted that way. There was no way that Jesus was going to rule over me. So in one way or another, we sort of, uh, uh, I suppose, echoed and reflected that particular aspect. But so the question is, how could, how could he make a prayer like this? How is it possible that Jesus could say, even ask of his heavenly father to forgive such a rotten lot? How is it possible that Jesus could even suggest such a prayer? Well, because he was the answer to it. He was the reason why it was made possible. In fact, this very statement here in verse 34, not the second one we just read, but the first one he made, really sums up the whole message. Father, forgive them. Why is it possible to forgive them? Because I'm about to die for them. I'm about to be the perfect sacrifice. I'm about, as a spotless lamb of God, to be the one put on the altar for them. I'm going to take their place. I'm going to pay the penalty. I'm going to make it possible for you, God, to be able to exercise in your holiness, in your righteousness, still to be able to exercise grace and mercy 
and forgiveness because I'm going to pay the price. So at every entitlement to say that prayer, Father, forgive them for what I'm about to do is going to make it possible. It's going to open the door for you, God Almighty, my Heavenly Father, to exercise an amazing set of circumstances here, the forgiveness of those that would seek him. Now, of course, it's not automatic. We know that. In 1 Corinthians, it says this, For he hath made him to be sin for us, he who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That's what he was praying, that this sacrifice would be acceptified, accepted. It would justify. It would be sufficient grounds and requirements to allow God to pass on forgiveness. In First Peter, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness. Now, he and he alone could make that sacrifice, and he alone knew that. He paid the price. Now, he wasn't um, excusing them. He goes on to say, for they know not what they do. Well, they knew what they were doing, all right. They were going through the motions and they were very pleased about what they were doing. So what does this mean here? Was this some sort of cop out here? Was the Lord making an excuse for them? Of course not, because the prayer says forgive them. You don't have forgiveness unless there's guilt. And so he knew they were guilty. They were well and truly guilty, as all mankind, including us, 2,000 years later, were guilty of trespass and sin, who have no right to the Lord. But what they didn't recognise, what they didn't know was the enormity of their sin. And that's the same today. It was the same in my life. The same. I never gave any consideration to sin. I never sought the Lord for forgiveness of sins. I don't, I don't even think, think I thought about it whatsoever. And I would suggest that most people never think about it. In fact, the word sin is not even a popular word anymore. I don't think it gets used very much at all. I don't think it gets even used much in churches particularly. Other if you're feeling miserable and contrite and want to whip yourself in some way or other. So sadly... People don't appreciate the enormity of the gulf that their sin has caused between them and God, between them and their creator, and the enormous consequences of sin. The cost of sin is deadly. And so people don't realise that. Now, that's not an excuse. That's not a cop-out. It wasn't sort of getting them off the hook because of that. It was just recognise that they need to stop. They need to stop and consider this. And the time would come, hopefully, when people would stop and they would reflect, and it's called repentance. If we recognise that we really are sinners, then what in tune? We've got a righteous God and we're unrighteous, unholy people. We've got nothing that we can offer him. There's no merit within ourselves. There's no worthiness. We have to have grace, unmerited favour. We have to have mercy to pardon us, to set us free. And we need to recognise that. This is So what was happening on the cross here was, was God's plan. They don't know what... For they know not what they do. They don't know they're actually fulfilling God's plan. They don't know this is the means by which ultimately they and all the rest can be saved. They think they're getting rid of this troublemaker, Jesus. And Jesus was well aware of all of that. And he's saying here, you know, ultimately your plan will be fulfilled, Lord, and they will have access to salvation. Now, it's not automatic. Some people look at this and say, oh, you can just uh, sort of wave the magic wand around, everybody gets forgiven. No, it doesn't work like that. Forgiveness is uh, two-way traffic, and they had to do something about it. They weren't automatically forgiven, of course, but it was making provision for them to be forgiven if we do something about it, if we seek the Lord for forgiveness. If you do nothing, 
That's simple. You go to hell. You don't have to do anything for that. But if you want heaven, you've got to do something about it. You've got to recognise your sinful nature and you've got to turn to the only source of supply for the forgiveness of sins. And that is, of course, what Jesus Christ is doing on the cross of Calvary here. And that's what he was saying. And ultimately, hopefully, they would know what they were doing. And we reflect and we see we know what they were doing. We know now the meaning of all of this. We know what Jesus Christ achieved on the cross of Calvary. We know his mission was fulfilled and complete. We know he rose from the dead. We know he went back to his heavenly father. And we know the heavenly father accepted this perfect and only sacrifice to make it possible for our sins to be forgiven. This is the only way we can be united with the Father. And we know that's happened because in Acts chapter 1, we read of Jesus Christ having risen from the dead. He was now to, to be risen up to his heavenly Father again. He was going back to his original realm. And he said to these disciples in Acts chapter 1, you wait now in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father which said he, you have heard of me, for John the Baptist truly baptised with water, but he said there was one coming after him, him who, who was baptised you with the Holy Ghost and fire, whose shoes I'm not worthy to bear, but he will baptise you with the Holy Ghost and fire. I'm, I'm doing what's necessary because water baptism is critical. If you rec truly recognise, truly recognise that you're a sinner and you truly recognise that you need to repent of your sins, then you'll truly recognise you need to bury your old life. You need to start again. I mean, it stinketh, the Bible says. So we need to do something about it. Bind a big hole and bury it. Well, we don't have to do that. We have a, a baptism tank. So it's, it's possible. Armchairs are falling off. Uh, it's possible to, uh, to go through the symbolic process of burial to be baptised in water. Symbolically covering yourself, as it were, with water so that you might be buried in the sight of the Lord. You're acknowledging to God and maybe to all of us, yes, I, I, I recognise that, I need to do something about it. In Acts chapter 2, they received the Holy Spirit and spoke in tongues. And people balk at that and it was good that Jeremy was talking about that. Everybody receives the Holy Spirit, speaks in tongues. Let me repeat that. Everybody who receives the Holy Spirit speaks in tongues. All the people said, that's the way it is. Don't argue with me about it. You can come and talk to me about it by all means or anybody else for that matter. But in the Bible, they will all speak in tongues. Jesus said so. He said so in not just in Mark 16, but in John chapter 3. He said, you will hear the voice thereof, the voice of the Spirit. You'll all hear the voice thereof. So is, words of Jesus Christ, so is everyone who is born of the Spirit. You'll hear the voice thereof. Everyone. Not everyone by one. Everyone. Now, is that a problem? Well, it's a problem to the world. It's not a problem to me. It was the only thing that would have convinced me. When I was baptised, if I didn't have a miracle, then I would have said, well, you've all just been confused and misled and uh, drawn into something of your own accord. But I had a miracle. Like all of us have, that have received the Holy Spirit have had our miracle. It's not the end of miracles. It's the beginning. It's not uh, all the Lord is going to do for us. No, it's one of many things, but it's the critical one. We have to be born again. And when on, in Acts chapter 2, we read here that the people who heard all of this, and as Jeremy pointed out, some people recognise some languages, just to demonstrate this wasn't just gobbledygook or made-up sounds. This was real stuff, real miracles. And they came and they asked Peter, what shall we do? They were pricked in their heart. And Peter said, you've got to repent 
This is Peter's words, the words of the Lord, because Peter was speaking on behalf of the Lord, of course. Repent and be baptized for the remission or the forgiveness of your sins. Now, repentance and water baptism doesn't forgive your sins. But if you put that together with an honest heart, it goes on to say, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And that will cleanse you of your sins and wash you and regenerate you. That's how it works. It's the forgiveness of sins. So the Lord's Prayer, I can testify, has been answered. Father, forgive them, because in 1969, I was forgiven of my sins. Not that I was some special person. I certainly wasn't, nor were you. But the Lord was gracious and merciful to do that, of course. So God was well pleased when we made our approaches. Let's go to Colossians. You're thinking, are we ever going to look at another scripture? Yes, we are. Colossians chapter 2. Perhaps we'll look at verse 12. Buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God who hath raised him from the dead. It's God's operation. It's God's business to adopt people into his family by his spirit. It's not our decisions. We don't just give our heart to the Lord and the Lord says, oh, okay. Or we don't just say the sinner's prayer as if that'll do it or put our name on a card somewhere or even just go to church. No matter what we think of the church or the people or whatever, that's got nothing to do with anything in terms of the initial approach to the Lord and getting our relationship with him right. We have to be spirit-filled, of course. It's the gift of righteousness, otherwise we're not righteous. And verse 13, And you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened, revived, made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, all trespasses. Hallelujah. Um, I read a little statement which said, There is not a tribunal or court in the land that could impose any penalty or enforce any payment of any account marked forgiven. And we've got a stamp on our account. It's been stamped forgiven through the Holy Spirit. And if we've been forgiven, then we're not accountable in terms of having to pay the initial price anymore. Or we're accountable in our day-to-day affairs with the Lord, but the price was paid on the cross of Calvary. And that's why Jesus could say, Father, forgive them because I'm paying the price. I'm fulfilling the possibilities now for people to make their approaches. And we have, and the Lord has proved that to us, and we're thrilled with that. Forgiven. Verse 14, blotting out the handwriting of ordinance that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. So the Lord was totally victorious on our behalf. And he spoke victoriously, as it were, Father, forgive them. I don't know what they're doing, but you and I do. We know what we're doing and we know what this is going to achieve and we know the far-reaching blessing that was going to be available for the world to tap into. Incredible. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, it says this, I quote from the Amplified, but you are washed, clean, purified by a complete atonement for sin, a complete atonement for sin and made free from the guilt of sin, And you were consecrated, you were set apart, 
You are hallowed, you are sanctified, you are justified, you are pronounced righteous in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit of our God. It's an incredible relationship we now have with the Lord by the Holy Spirit. And there are people who still minimise the power of the Holy Spirit, don't even talk about him, don't even make reference to him, and yet the Bible is totally contingent on, on our relationship with God on the Holy Spirit. In 1 John it says, If we freely admit that we have sinned and confess our sins, he is faithful and just and true to his own nature and to his own promises and will forgive our sins and continually cleanse us from all unrighteousness, everything that is not in conformity to his will and purpose in thought and in action. He will continually look after us. It's an ongoing. That prayer is ongoing, as it were, for us. In 1 John chapter 2, again from the Amplified, My little children, I write you these things so that you may not violate God's law and sin. But if anyone should sin, we have an advocate, one who will intercede for us, Jesus Christ, of course, with the, with the Father. It is Jesus Christ, the all-righteous, upright, just one, who conforms to the Father's will in every purpose, thought in action. So he's not on the cross anymore saying these prayers but he's in heavenly, his heavenly realm, sitting on the right-hand side of the Father, saying, as it were, much the same thing, or, or at least in essence, Father, continue to look after them, continue to forgive them, continue to watch and care for them, continue to provide for them, continue to see them through. Because my sacrifice, Jesus was able to say, covers everything. It is finished, he said, on the cross of Calvary. Now... Hallelujah. That's our position. That's what we reflect on. That's what we're going to partake of in a moment. We partake of the communion elements. We remember that. But there's a little bit more for us to make sure we appreciate. He was meant to be our example. We've given illustrations of as we go through. But it says in First Peter, For Christ who suffered for you, leaving you his personal example, so that you should follow on in his footsteps. So we've got to somehow or other be inspired and encouraged and uh, em to emulate the things that the Lord did. Now, as I said earlier on, we, we won't be able to perfect that, but we're trying to give it our best shot. We're looking to the Lord for our strength and guidance and encouragement. We're looking for all the things that are going to make it possible for us to try our hardest to represent him well, not to be finding ourselves guilty, not to condemn ourselves, not to feel inadequate, not to feel we can't make it or we're useless or something or other or I can't do that and this person's doing this and I, I'm not good at that. No, just to look at ourselves and say, Lord, I want to do the things that are going to please you. I want to learn of you. I want to grow. I want to mature. I want to develop in, in my ability and appreciation and uh, anything I can do to represent you well and to be a servant in the kingdom of God. I want to be more like Jesus. Less of me, more of Jesus in my life. And so we need to read his word because Jesus is here, the word of God made flesh. So we, we, we want to find out what we need to know, how we need to apply. Rather than retaliating like Jesus didn't do, sometimes which we do do, we need to show our love and consideration and forgiveness. He prayed rather than condemning. In fact, in Matthew chapter 5, he puts this upon us. He says, love your enemies. Wow. Bless them that curse you. Mm, not so sure about that. Do good to them that hate you. Hang on a sec. 
Pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Oh, well, I used to pray their chooks die. <laughs> now I've got to pray that it was well with them. That's a bit of a dramatic change, isn't it? That doesn't sound like it's too possible. Well, in the world, it probably isn't all that marvellously possible. But in the Lord, we're supposed to stop and reflect because we do know what we do now. For we understand what the Lord has got to say for us. He also had an incredible hope, didn't he? Fancy praying for them that they, that they might be saved ultimately. Didn't mean they were going to be saved. We don't, we don't know about most of those mob and people there. We don't know what they did. Like billions of people have come down through the ages. Well, you know, most of them have probably continued to reject the Lord one way or another. But, uh, but he still prayed for them. And we'll keep praying. You've got some unsaved relatives? Keep praying. Got some unsaved contacts that work? Keep praying. You got some people who've uh, maybe slipped away a little bit? Keep praying. We want to encourage people uh, to be involved. We should never give up hope. There are wonderful examples of people who've come to the Lord uh, after decades. Husbands and wives, wife comes along perhaps, or the husband comes along, the other partner does not come along, uh, and uh, decades go by. And suddenly, in my case, uh, I waited about 11 months. But in some cases, it might be 11 years or even longer than that. Uh, so he, he had a, a wonderful attitude. Colossians chapter 3, we must conclude somewhere. Just over to Colossians chapter 3 and verse 12, telling us about our attitude, which, of course, was the attitude of the Lord. Verse 12, put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, Humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things put on charity or love, which is the bond of perfectness. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also you are called in one body, and be ye thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever, whatsoever you do, in word or in deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. Wow. That's just an example that Paul gave to the people, Colossians people there, but... Uh, there are many other examples. I mean, for example, in Ephesians chapter 4, he says, and become useful and helpful and be kind to one another. Be tender-hearted, compassionate, understanding, loving-hearted, forgiving one another, readily and freely forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And Matthew 6 was pretty strong. If you do not forgive people their trespasses, this is the word of Jesus, letting them go and give up resentment, neither will your father forgive you or your trespasses. So he's wanting us to have an ongoing attitude of, uh, well, I appreciate what the Lord has done on the cross of Calvary in the midst of all his agony, he prayed for us. Father, forgive them. He's thinking of us in all his agony. And so in all of our circumstances, we need to have a little bit of a mind for other people as well and their things. We don't want to be holding grudges. We don't want to be playing no speakies. And we don't want to be uh, finding tit for tat and so on. We want to... You have a good attitude towards one another. We're in the body of Christ. I've often said, you know, we, we, we're going to live with each other forever. Have a look around. We're going to be living with each other forever. 
Uh, and, you know, when we get to meet the Lord in the air, you won't be able to find a cloud to hide behind and think, ooh, I didn't really get on with that person all that marvellously well, did I? I still owed them $2 and I refused to give it to them because I hope their chooks died. Let's get our attitudes right, of course. Acts chapter 5, we'll finish over here. Acts chapter 5. I might add, it's not always easy, is it? I mean, some people, they are pains, aren't they? They don't understand, do they? They don't act like we do. They don't uh, understand like I do. They don't respond the way they should. Well, look, we, yes, people do need correcting. They need redirecting, but uh, in, in a way that hopefully it'll restore them and uh, bring them into action again and get them thinking correctly, hopefully, if they're being a bit unscriptural. Acts chapter 5, we're reading here, and verse... Uh, now, in this story, of course, we're, we, you're familiar with the fact that um, there was an amazing uh, a g- a direction given by the Lord in the early stages of how um, uh, these people, well, tried to lie to the Holy Ghost. It didn't do them any good, of course. And then, then after that, uh, we, we read about how these the disciples went out and they were healing people and so on and there was a lot of stuff going on and people were not very happy about this and they throw, threw them in prison for representing the Lord and preaching the gospel. Uh, and uh, you, you wouldn't think that would be very fair. I mean, what, why am I getting this adversity for preaching the gospel? On numerous occasions, they, various ones who preached the gospel found themselves uh, being uh, uh, opposed in one way or another. Anyway, we read uh, the, 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 they were put in prison and the angel of the Lord came and released them and uh, they were told to go and stand and speak again. And so when the, the authorities were going to try and find these people, they weren't in prison anymore. They'd been set free. And they, Where are these people? Well, they're out there preaching the gospel again. What? We told them not to do that and here they are doing it again. They're going and they're standing and they're speaking the words of life and truth. And they, what's going on here? And you read in verse 25, Behold, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. What? Hopeless. So they went to challenge them again. And verse 29, or maybe we read verse, uh, we read verse 27, And when they had brought them, uh, them, they set them before the council, and the high priest asked them, saying, Did not we straightly command you that you should not teach in this name? And behold, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. Now the word ought there in the Greek is the word di, which actually means must. We must obey God rather than men. Uh, In the Greek, the connotation is it's a logical necessity. If you understand the the reasoning behind it, this particular word is saying, if you understand this, then this must follow, must follow. If you understand that God's word is far superior than the words of men and the ideas of men, then you must obey God, not men, obviously. It's logical, must. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you slew and hanged on a tree, the one who said, Father, forgive them. He hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince, a captain and a saviour, for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. The whole message of the cross is for our sins to be forgiven. And that's the very first words that Jesus said on the cross. Forgive them. And it's now possible through the Holy Spirit to be forgiven. And we are his witnesses. Yes, all of us are his witnesses of these things. And so also is the Holy Ghost whom God hath given to them that obey him, that seek him and do it his way, of course. 
When they heard that, they were cut to the heart and took counsel to slay them. That's the reaction of this world, isn't it? And that's the reaction we're going to get, of course. And in a way, that was the reaction I gave when I first heard about it. I didn't respond. Maybe you didn't respond instantly. Maybe you argued and debated as so many people do. And so, again, we, it continues on. And you go down to... Uh, people were saying in the middle here, well, look, it's, if it's of God, we can't beat it anyway. Maybe you just need to refrain and let it be. Verse 38, And now I say unto you, refrain from these men and let them alone. For if this counsel of, or this work be of men, it will come to naught. But if it be of God, he, you cannot overthrow it. Lest happily be found to fight against God. And to him they agreed, and when they called the apostles and beaten them, just to make, give them a little bit of a send-off, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Hallelujah. They were happy, not with the beating, but happy, happy they got the beating because they were sons and daughters of the living God and they were representing the Lord. And daily in the temple and in every house they ceased not to teach and to preach Jesus Christ, more of Jesus, less of me. All the people said, Amen. Amen.